half and half chance of snow on Friday and Friday night. Again, we're still not sure what the system is going to do in our area in terms of accumulation. It may just graze us uh, or we may get something significant. But either way, we're going to be keeping an eye on it. Stay tuned. It is time for Let's Talk Vets. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com From Dog Mountain Lodge, providing dog boarding and grooming, also boarding cats, birds, and other exotic pets. Located in Keshekta, New York, and on the web at DogMountainLodge.com and from listeners like oh, you. Good evening. Welcome once again to Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. This is where we discuss vet-centric topics, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the hope that our listeners will better understand our veterans, our veterans will know they're not alone, and perhaps along the way we'll learn something about each other. We sincerely hope to accomplish that mission. The opinions expressed on this program are mine alone as a veteran. We have a great show for you tonight. Uh, Pete Meriday is the new peer support manager at Clear Path for Veterans, a remarkable organization working hard to assist military members and veterans transition and succeed in the civilian world. Hans Hagemann has worn many hats. Stick around, you'll want to hear his fascinating story. But first of all, as is our custom on the fourth Wednesday of every month, here is Dawn Shaw. Director of the VA Hudson Valley Healthcare System with your latest updates on the VA Today. Thanks, Doug. Because of the recent surge in positive COVID-19 cases in our communities, our veterans will see some changes in their care, similar to what they've seen earlier during the pandemic, like switching from face-to-face to virtual appointments. As always, we are doing everything we can to protect our most vulnerable veterans and keep our staff and everyone who visits our facilities safe. Even with all the uncertainty, we are making great efforts to shift back to the basics and promote preventative health. So one of the exciting initiatives I wanted to tell you about that we're rolling out this month is called A Healthier You in 2022. A Healthier You in 2022 is a challenge to our veterans to set goals for the coming year to keep themselves as healthy as possible throughout the year and in future years. Our staff and providers will use the goals set by our veterans as a tool to start a conversation about their health goals and guide them toward the programs and services we offer that will help them reach their goals. We're very excited about this new initiative, and please ask your provider about it when you have your next scheduled appointment. I also want to tell you about a new relaunch we're doing regarding our Veteran Experience Committee. I've been working closely with our Veteran Experience Officer, David Marshall, to revamp our Veteran Experience Committee here at VA Hudson Valley with a focus on solving issues our veterans are facing and truly conquering the issues that are most important to our veterans. We've recently held three focus groups with our community partners, and after the final focus group, which was held yesterday, we will be sending out invites to members and interested veterans, family members that would like to be part of the committee. Our Veteran Experience Committee will meet and be co-chaired by David Marshall and myself, and it will also consist of VA Hudson Valley staff, as well as the veterans and family members that represent all our VA Hudson Valley veterans. Our goal is to make it a working committee that is actionable. We will regularly review data from veteran experience surveys and use the data and emerging topics in our discussions to guide what areas we want to improve 
to enhance our veterans' experience. And we look forward to this ex very exciting revamp that will be taking place starting in February of 2022. I'm also very pleased and excited to announce that Lennox Ocal has been selected as VA Hudson Valley Healthcare System's new outreach coordinator. Lenny began his career at VA Hudson Valley in 2017 as a medical support assistant and most recently held the role of public affairs specialist in the public affairs office here at VA Hudson Valley. Before joining the VA, he was an administrative specialist in the United States Marine Corps attached to an air control unit. And later in his Marine Corps career, he worked as, at a recruiting headquarters where he got his first experience in public affairs. Lenny received his master's degree from Pace University, where he studied healthcare administration, and is a graduate of several VA leadership and personal development programs. With Lenny's knowledge of VA, his work ethic, and dedication to our mission, there is no doubt that he will positively impact our organization and the care received by his fellow veterans. So if you're planning a community event or would like more information about the services we offer to veterans at VA Hudson Valley, please reach out to Lenny by email at lennox.ocal at va.gov. And I'll spell that for you. That's L-E-N-O-X period O-K-A-L-L -L at va.gov. Thanks very much. I'm really glad to be a part of the show today, and thank you to all our veterans for everything you do. Pete Meriday is the Peer Support Manager for Clear Path for Veterans. No one understands a veteran like another veteran, so the peer-to-peer -peer model is extremely effective, helping vets and active-duty military members navigate the transition to a civilian world and to help manage their unique challenges. Welcome, Pete. Thank you, Doug. appreciate the opportunity to be here and be on the show with you. Okay, well, let's start with who is Pete Meriday. Tell us about yourself and your career in the United States Air Force. Absolutely. Um, so I, um, I'm, I'm an Orange County guy. I was born and raised in the Newburgh, New Windsor area. Went through the uh, Newburgh School Districts at the age of 17. Upon graduation, I joined the Air Force in the delayed enlistment program. And uh, a few months uh, after graduation, went right into the service. I was 17 years old. Went to basic training, you know, the, the whole routine, Lackland Mentech School in uh, Illinois at Chanute, which is now closed and spent the extent of my four years stateside in Florida and upstate New York. Separated from the regular Air Force in November of 85, and from there went right into uh, the New York uh, Air National Guard at Stewart Air National Guard Base, the 105th Airlift Wing, which at the time I believe was uh, the 105th Military Airlift Group. I can't even remember. It's been so long now. But I joined the Guard. was uh, a National Guardsman in the traditional sense for three months. And uh, three months to the day after I joined the Guard, I became what's called an AGR, and that's Active Guard Reserve. It's, it's, uh, it's a federal title that is applied to a full-time National Guard employee, where I was basically on an active duty status. And uh, I spent the next 20 years in that capacity at Stewart. I worked in the aircraft maintenance world. I was a statistical analyst and database manager, worked in logistics, basically in a support role my, my whole career. It was a, a great career, very, uh, very pleased with the opportunity to serve and to be a part of that, some outstanding military units that did credible work, being a part of the first C-5 unit in uh, the history of the Air National Guard was, was I considered it a great privilege because of uh, so much we were able to accomplish. And um, they've since moved on to the C-17 I retired in, in uh, January of 2006, did a little over 24 years, and went into the uh, civilian sector from there, working in the corporate environment in uh, software. I uh, spent 12 years as a technical analyst in, in the software world in, in a company that was local at the time, and um, they closed their doors 
uh, locally, so I ended up losing my job as a result of that. And a while later, I got a position with a company in Middletown, New York, uh, where I was a statistical analyst for about 13 months, and then COVID cut that short. I lost that position, and 10 months later, thankfully, my wife was watching my back and paying close attention as uh, I was trying to find the job, and she came across this uh, uh, job announcement. I believe it was on Indeed or Clear Path for Veterans, and she sent it to me and said, this sounds like you. I said, what in the world is this? I never heard of them. I was uh, unfamiliar with their organization. So let's and, talk uh, about uh, Clear Path a little bit. How old sure. is the organization? How big is the organization? Uh, where's uh, it Where's it based, and what's the service area? ClearPath is uh, a 10-year-old veteran service organization. started in, I believe it was September of, of 2011. It started in Chittenango, New York, which is the home base or the headquarters uh, uh, still. Uh, we have a 78-acre uh, facility up there. It's a beautiful property. The program was, was started by three people. Melissa Spicer was the founder of the program, along with her sister, Melinda Sorrentino, and a retired Air Force doctor who was a colonel. His name was Steve Kinney, but he, along with uh, Melissa and Melinda, uh, decided to start a program called Dogs to Vets. So it actually started out just as a, a canine program, a service dog program. And then uh, it, and that was in 2011. And then over time, it started to expand and evolve and become a more, a, a more full-blown veteran service organization with more programs and services. Yeah, you've got, uh, got a lot of stuff going on. So, again, what is, what is the area of service? How many counties or areas do you serve? My focus is on Orange, Dutchess, Ulster, Putnam, Sullivan, part of Delaware counties, and also Rockland and Westchester. Now, Rockland and Westchester, I haven't delved into yet. That's going to be one of my next jobs is to really jump into uh, getting more involved in the Rockland and Westchester areas. Uh, there's a lot of veterans and um, as, as a one-person office, it's, it's a lot, so I'm, I'm taking it piece by piece. We will be expanding, so there will be other people coming on board in the Hudson Valley in the near future to assist with that. What, it, what exactly do you do? Is it a one-on-one -on -one thing at this point where you work with one veteran, or do you work with groups? Do you do presentations? How does it work? Uh, kind of all of the above. And the capacity is the the satellite, if you will, for Clear Path in the Hudson Valley. It's been my job to get the office up and running to establish our presence and at the same time work with veterans that are referred to me. So I work, I've worked with numerous veterans uh, over the course of the past 11 months. I started in January of, of 2021 uh, in this position. So in that time, my focus has been getting the office up and running, getting our our name out there, connecting with other organizations, collaborating with other veteran service organizations, businesses, political connections, uh, anyone that is involved in any way, shape, or form with helping our veteran community. And again, at the same time, as referrals come to me, uh, whether it's through the VA or privately, uh, whether if I meet them myself at an event, I'd work with them. As a peer, it's my job to walk shoulder to shoulder with the veteran to help them get whatever the services are that they need, uh, to be there to support them in, in whatever their need is, to meet them at their need. The, one of the ways I do that is working very closely with VA Hudson Valley. We do work in partnership in the Hudson Valley with VA Hudson Valley, so many of my referrals come through the VA. And it's been a great partnership. It's been a very productive partnership. And uh, I continue to work very close with them. The gentleman there, Adam Zanansky, who runs the whole health program, has been my primary contact. And through Adam, we've been able to establish a very strong working relationship. And now, through that continued partnership, we're bringing our canine program down to the Hudson Valley as well. We're opening it up to veterans in the Hudson Valley. And I also want to point out 
that we also serve the veteran family member, veteran caregiver, and obviously the service member as well, not just veterans. Right. So we're actually looking at four categories of people there that we could potentially help. How many other catchment areas does ClearPath have besides yours? Uh, great question. We're actually in 33 counties. We have counties in what we call the southern tier, out, out by Broome, through central New York, into uh, the north country and western New York. So uh, you, you're getting way up into the area of the Great Lakes, through Rochester, down toward Buffalo, with the exception of the very eastern corridor that's north of, of Albany. We're still not in that area yet, but we will be working toward that area here in the next year or two. We'll, we'll have a presence there as well. If people come to me or come to my attention that are in the northern counties like Green, Columbia, uh, Albany, Rensselaer, I'll be more than happy to help them. I've already done that and will continue to do that. And certainly there's no one I would say no to. I've worked with people from New Jersey. I've worked with people from Pennsylvania. So, you know, it's, we're going to help whoever we possibly can. So if you bring the, um, the canine program to this area, where will you base that out of? I mean, there's uh, several weeks of training involved, as I understand it. Do you have to first locate a dog, suitable dog, and then kind of like an arranged marriage, right? you got to uh, find a veteran <laughs> and a dog that are compatible and then go through the um, in-house training, if you will, and then it slowly migrate out to the outer world to see how they work together in public and in different environments, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's close. That's actually, and that's a great way of putting it. An arranged marriage. It's very much like that. In 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 our in this in this instance, uh, for the time being, um, the program. Even though I'm saying we're bringing it into the Hudson Valley, that basically means right now that we've opened it up to Hudson possible recipients from the Hudson Valley. So it's about identifying people, which we've already done. We have about three to four people identified as possible recipients that we're, we're talking to right now. But what that basically amounts to is having them apply and our um, interview process. And then assuming that the individual is accepted into the program, they'll get eventually get matched with a dog. Now, our dogs are not just any dogs that we, we find. They come to us as puppies. So the, the clear path model is to get the dogs as puppies. I believe they're four weeks old. They're generally English labs. And they go through a 24-month training process. And not every dog necessarily makes it through the training. And um, they'll go through the training process. They'll get matched with a veteran, a veteran who's been received into the program. And then that, that dog and that veteran will go through a three-week training, which right now will, will continue to be at Chittenango, at our facility in, in Chittenango, where well, they'll learn to work with the dog, care for the dog, and basically everything that comes with uh, having ownership of a, a service dog. Uh, and, of course, we cover everything for them while they're up there. And then from that point on, they'll, they'll go out and to their day-to-day -day life. That's, in general, how the model uh, works. And okay. it's been a very successful model. Uh, we, we have an outstanding program. Our canine director has, been, has done an amazing job. He's got an amazing team. His name is Ryan Woodruff, and I, I always like to point that out. I love watching the, the canine program at work. It's an absolutely fascinating thing to see. They do an amazing job. So I like to cook. Tell me about the culinary program. Well, right now, COVID had put a, a kink into that. The kitchen, if you will, shut down. So uh, everything that went on at, at the Clear Path Kitchen uh, came to an end. We had to uh, rehire a chef uh, recently. He came in, um, gosh, a few months back. He's done a bang-up job. And right now, the culinary program is, is primarily serving our, our canteen. We Every week we have a canteen, which is based off of the North Platte Canteen story. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there's that great story of the North Platte Canteen that uh, existed in North Platte, Nebraska. It was a, a railroad town, and, and the, it's, this, this canteen is modeled after that. 
if you haven't heard of that or seen it, I suggest you, you, you do a search online. It's a great story about this effort by a community to serve our service members that were coming through that town during World War II. And so we have this canteen where we serve 200 or so serve, uh, veterans and family members every Wednesday from, I believe, 11 to 1.30 at our facility in, in Chittenango. But also right now he, he's also supporting our events. So our culinary program is is really right now uh, focused on supporting all of our events and offerings that where food is, is featured. Okay, peer mentoring. What is that? A peer mentor is somebody basically who has had a, a, a similar life experience and is there in a supportive capacity. So in my case, as a peer, I'm working with the veterans who are, are coming with a need. And if I, and it could be something as simple as uh, a listening ear or uh, if there's a need for food support, if uh, you need assistance with employment, finding a job, finding housing, help with VA benefits or legal services or transportation. Maybe you need help to and from your, your appointments at the VA. You're kind of a navigator then uh, to help them uh, through a process, whatever it is. If they're looking for a job, you would kind of try to define what their skill sets are and, and help them look through jobs that might fit and help them prepare for writing a resume and, uh, and a job interview and such. Yeah, that's absolutely part of it. I mean, we and, and with respect to employment, um, that 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 is a uh, another program that we offer called Warriors Working. We'll contract with employers to help them find uh, qualified veterans uh, to work with them. It's um, amazing to me, and and thank God that we have NGOs like ClearPath to help these guys because. As you and I just discussed on a panel discussion about homelessness, a lot of this stuff falls into the transition part where, where people coming out of the service need to transition back to civilian life and kind of try to, you know, put their military life behind them and get back into the civilian world and understand what's going on. And a lot of what you're describing is everything, quite frankly, our government should be doing. Yeah. Well, and I think that's that's to your point. That's why it's so important that organizations like ClearPath exist. And you know, if you look at our our motto is supporting the journey home, right? And that's really what we're doing through our programs, through our our services. We're supporting that journey home, and um, uh, it's 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 a fascinating experience to be a part of something like ClearPath. I think we were a very well-rounded organization that offers a lot more than what you, you certainly could see from a government organization. I think that's one of the reasons why we're so successful is, is because we have that kind of that wide range of offerings. And it, yeah, it resonates with the veteran community. It resonates with their families, and it's a need. But a big part of that I want to emphasize, uh, certainly from my personal experience, has, is, is collaboration. It's working with other organizations. You know, no one organization can do it all. No one organization is necessarily going to be uh, great at every everything. I don't hesitate for a second if I think there's another organization out there that's better suited to help the individual, then I'm going to refer them to, the, to that organization. Because at the end of the day, it's really about helping the veteran. It's helping them get what they need when they need it. And, uh, you know, it's not about a pat on the back or racking up the numbers or anything like that. I think it's important that we focus, stay focused on in the end game, and that's it's helping the veterans get to where they need to be and try to stay aware of who's out there, who's, who might be slipping through the cracks, how can we reach them. We talked about that during that roundtable as well. Well, in the private sector, it's called networking. Uh, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> that, that's uh, and to tell you the truth. From the, the day the day that I started on January 18th of 2021, I started networking. 
in a big way. Uh, I didn't, obviously, I had no referrals. We were an unknown entity in the Hudson Valley at that time. It started with picking up the phone and uh, reaching out to all the relevant players in the Hudson Valley to make our presence known, to say, hey, how can we, how can we work together? How can we can collaborate uh, to make a difference for the better? And, uh, and it's been a fantastic ride. Um, because of people like Larry Newman, the Hudson Valley Veterans Task Force, uh, and numerous uh, organizational directors like uh, the VSA, the Veterans Service Agencies for the surrounding counties, the other vet-to-vets, the Hudson Valley Center for Veteran Reintegration, uh, organizations like that. And, of course, uh, our one of our partners, uh, uh, Victory Hill Therapeutic Horsemanship, Laurie Bryceland, the fantastic great organization. organization. Fantastic. Great organization. Yep. Yeah, we are, we're working very closely in, in the hopes of, uh, uh, of coming together and, in one, one area, uh, one facility to, to offer services to veterans in a location down here. So it's, it's, it's from the day I started, one of my, my goals was to bring everything that ClearPath has to offer in Chittenango to bring it to the Hudson Valley. That's a, a tremendous aspiration, and uh, I, I certainly hope that you are successful in doing that. So get some closing thoughts from you, and then if someone wants to help out or if someone uh, needs to contact you with a uh, maybe a caregiver uh, has a veteran that they'd like you to help uh, or a veteran wants to get in touch with you, give us the contact information and and, um, and the website and such. Absolutely. So I, I'm, I'm here uh, for any veteran, veteran family member, veteran caregiver or service member that needs assistance uh, with services. You can reach me at uh, 315-663-8777. Seven zero. My email is very simple, peter at clearpath4vets.com. That's peter at clearpath4vets.com. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about our history, our programs, our services, I encourage you to visit our website. It's clearpath4vets.com. And you can that could either be ClearPath the number four vets or forvets dot com. Either one will get you there. It's a great site. gives a, a, a very good um, overview of who we are, who our staff is, and uh, what we do. I would encourage you to visit it. And uh, and if you just want to call to talk, uh, I'd be more than happy to do that. Spend some time uh, going over what we can um, what we can offer you and how we can help. I, I want to say it has been a, really one of the great pr- privileges of my life to be able to do this job. I've been very fortunate and very blessed to be a part of this and to work with the people that I've had the opportunity to work with. I'm very grateful to ClearPath for the opportunity. And uh, I am looking forward to seeing what 2022 is going to bring. It already looks like it, it's, start, it's going to start out with a bang. We're going to hit the ground running. We've got a lot of things going on. We're, we're working hard toward bringing that canine program here and expanding our services down here um, with our partners. So uh, it should be a great year. Well, I'm, and, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful for you as well. Just another example of ordinary people doing extraordinary work. Peter Meriday, Peer Support Manager, Clear Path for Veterans. Thank you, Peter. Thank you very much, Doug. I do appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> Well, we always meet fascinating people on this program, and Hans Hageman is no exception. To say his life's journey thus far has been more of an odyssey would be accurate. Here's my conversation with Hans, another ordinary person doing extraordinary things for our veterans. Welcome, Hans Hageman, to WJFF Less Talk Vets. Excited to be here. Thank you. We're very glad to have you. As you know, our our mission at Let's Talk Vets is really simple. Uh, we talk about vet-centric topics, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the hope that uh, our listeners better understand our veterans. Uh, our veterans listening will know they're not alone. Maybe we'll learn something about each other. 
but it has become very clear to me that how our veterans are treated has a great deal to do with the public's perception of military service. And it seems to me over time that the sacrifices and contributions of our women and men in uniform are fading, as are the fundamental beliefs of our founders. And to that point, it's imperative that our children are taught the history of this country, the good and the bad, so they may understand our triumphs and learn from our mistakes. And people like you are picking up the slack, and for that, I am grateful. So, let's start with your military service. Yeah, it was it was relatively undistinguished. Uh, I was after I was in ROTC at Princeton University, where I was friends with uh, General now General Mark Milley, and we used to run around the woods together. And he would tell me stories about Massachusetts, and I would tell him stories about Spanish Harlem, where I grew up. Was a thirty one Alpha. I was a, a military police lieutenant there, and went to aerosol school at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and kind of eight boring years on reserve. I, I tried to uh, get recommissioned again after the towers were hit in 2001. I was told I was too old, and uh, that's pretty much the extent of it. I'd like to start our conversation with the last sentence in your bio. Quote, my main goal is to become an ancestor worth remembering. And it seems to me that your work over the years is helping many children and young adults aspire to that type of goal. So you're raised in the projects, I guess that's the correct term, in Harlem. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, very in, early influence was your dad's and your, and your mother's work with Essex House. So tell us about that program and, and tell us how that affected you. How old were you at that point in time where you began to experience that, be, began to think about what was going on? Well, me, my brother and sister were very young and uh, father, we, we were born in Chicago and came out east when my father was a, he was a Methodist minister, um, member of something called the East Harlem Protestant Parish and was tasked with forming this uh, residential drug treatment center, which is pretty groundbreaking at the time. And so we uh, came and lived in first in some tenement houses where parent, my parents uh, <laughs> borrowed a cat and a dog to keep the rats from biting us. Uh, on an East 100th Street, we then moved into the what are known as housing projects, and uh, we got to see things like uh, John F. Kennedy and John Glenn going down the East River Drive. We would watch from our 11th floor window. I remember uh, a young man named Franklin Fisher during that time, and at that time, the projects were, were, were mainly uh, black, but there were some uh, Hispanic families, but also some white families, and we had a Jewish family living just right upstairs from us, and uh, Franklin Fisher was, um, his father died of cancer and, and young Franklin at the age of 16 decided he had to support the family. So he was able to uh, forge some credentials and actually uh, went to Vietnam at the age of 16 as a Marine, came back and, and it was interesting talking with him. He was older than I was and that was the first part of it. But at this residential drug treatment center, Exodus House that my father started, uh, we lived in uh a walk up, fourth floor walk up, right below us, there were dormitories for about 50 men, another 50 people, men and women would come in during the day. And the men who lived there had been released from prison or in fact had been veterans uh, from Vietnam. And so, you know, at the age of six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, you would hear these stories and sit with these men and, and listen to, to what they had gone through and how they were seeking redemption in, in a lot of different ways. And I got to witness my mother and father trying to provide the foundation for them to, to gain that redemption. So it was uh, certainly an early influence, and I, I guess probably led to your uh, ultimate decision to be a lifelong teacher and, and of service to uh, others. Yeah, they, my parents, and again, it, it wasn't so much by explicit direction, but just by example, I, I felt that, and my brother and sister as well felt that we had no, no other uh, path that we should go than, than one of service of some sort. Right, so after college, first few years, you spent uh, practicing law, interestingly enough, as a prosecutor and then a, uh, a public defender, and... Uh, I, I guess you just answered the question I was going to ask you. What prompted you to leave 
that lucrative profession and begin your career in education and service. And and uh, I guess it was always there, right? Well, in fact, Doug, I had a, I started out uh, working at a uh, more of a corporate law firm, trying to pay back my student loans. And my mother, I guess, in my third year, or not even said, what are you doing? This is not why you became a lawyer. You were out to save the world. She kind of said tongue in cheek. And I, I realized she was right. And that's when I uh, became a, a prosecutor. I then, between my stint as a prosecutor in New York, and, and it was at a time where uh, record setting homicides were happening in the city because of the crack epidemic and other things, I took a one year hiatus to go to work as chief counsel for a Senate subcommittee in Washington, D.C. And it's true what they say about not wanting to see either sausage or law get made. And uh, then then came back to take care of my parents. And that's where I was there as a, as a, as a public defender at an innovative uh, public defender's office uh, in Harlem. And I realized I was kind of part of a, a massive kind of wheel that was just going around and around. And I would see people in court on, on both sides of the bench, both as a prosecutor and public defender. And I see people from my community and I realized that there had to be some way to get people off the treadmill. And that's when I decided I was going to start a school and open that school with my brother in 93. And it's, it's, he's still running it today. And that brings me to my next um, subjects of interest. I know that a lot of your work has been with children and young adults who were unsuccessful in school for whatever reason. Also young boys convicted of uh, violent crimes and, you know, we hear a lot about intervention today in the whole global conversation about defund the police or shift funds over to prevention rather than, you know, after the fact. How successful is this type of intervention in uh, breaking what would otherwise probably become a really long rap sheet in a life of incarceration? I think a lot of the issues start with the model of schooling that we have. And, and, and frankly, uh, w as a society, we're getting divided more and more where what's valued are people who work with their heads and versus people who work with their heart and their hands. And, and, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're not on that treadmill uh, to credentials and, you know, education accolades and all this other stuff, you're, you're going to be relegated to work that a lot of people don't necessarily respect in this country. And that's unfortunate. And that's also uh, that that kind of lack of respect applies both to the military. It applies to farmers. It applies to people in construction. And when you're preparing kids in school, you've got to prepare them for the world that exists out there. And schools currently don't do that. You check some boxes and then everybody gets weeded out. And there are some kids who don't have the parental or family support and they get left along the wayside. And those were the kids I ended up working with. Now, I've also worked with, not just as a prosecutor, but I worked with uh, the former police commissioner in Baltimore, Fred Bielfeld, and I worked there for several years with the Baltimore Police Department, implementing community programs with the police there. And it, it's not popular in certain circles, but the community policing he was instituting in those communities in many ways the police who would respond after receiving that training were some of the most important men and women that a lot of times young people, teens and, and younger, would have in their lives, unfortunately. And, you know, when you talk about defund the police, there may be things that need to happen in terms of shifting certain parts of, of funding. But to say you're going to defund the police, frankly, the police are the first ones who show up when nobody else is going to show up. And, and they need to be given the tools and the training to react appropriately. And this program that I was working with with the Baltimore Police Commissioner, unfortunately, lost its funding because of the, the war on terror. And I think we're reaping the repercussions of a program that should have been run out everywhere in this in this country. And so police need to be there, needs to be the right kind of police. And education, in my opinion, needs to change dramatically, and the work of the heart and the hands needs to be valued as much as the work of the head. Well said. So what did that program look like when you, you just said that the, the men and women who were trained became some of the most valuable assets to the community and to the department? So what did that training look like? These were police officers? Police officers, there was a uh, an – they, they – uh, had to get have college degrees, and many of them were veterans, actually. 
so the training was implemented through through something called police corps and there was also training for people who were already on the job and for the people coming in through police corps it was <laughs> one of the interesting things was the and the person a guy named adam Molinsky, a uh, former marine and a former speechwriter for uh, the, the late bobby kennedy he believed that uh, one of the reasons there was so much police violence is because they were scared the police and because they would sit in their vehicles and and not be known in the community part of the training was to get the the trainees into the communities and whether it's the churches or various civic organizations or just being seen on the street was part of it the other part was for them to be very comfortable with lower levels of violence so that these these men and women going through the training were very comfortable going hands-on and that meant that they would not resort to to uh, their batons or their or their firearms and that made a huge difference and so there was that there was also going to various youth programs and mentoring programs for for the police to to mentor these mainly young males there was communications training to help de-escalate so that violence wouldn't be the first resort if something was going wrong but the bad guys in these communities know that if one of these people from the training was going to show up at a call it was going to end in favor of the cop that showed up from from police corps as you were talking i i imagine the old cop on the beat model from years ago yes, yes. but knowing some of those folks i mean they were certainly better known by the community but uh, a lot of the respect that they got was really wasn't respect it might have been fear because uh, there was a time when the guy would slap you up alongside the head with a a wand or something or a sap and and to get you to comply i guess what we're saying is that that community policing certainly has merit and that the cops who are familiar to the community and working within the community are known can have a big influence on um, young people as well as mentors and as examples. That's right. And, and they and they needed to be observers and, and students of, of human communications and sociology and history and, and a whole lot of other things. And the only people who would need fear them would be the bad guys who were ravaging those communities. So your work these days is pretty much directed around, you. I mean, you've done so many things with um, cultivating produce in communities and growing food and uh, care for the earth. But these days your energy is directed toward uh, natural health and wellness. And uh, let's talk about that a little bit right now. Uh, I presume you have some vets in that program as well, huh? Well, you know, Doug, this is this is it's great to be on this show because essentially I'm I'm inaugurating. This is a kind of an inaugural event as Larry Newman, uh, who I just met and who you know, uh, in, invited me to to talk about this program that I'm planning, and it was kind of happenstance. Somebody from the Orange County Youth Bureau said, "Well, I know you work with kids." She said, "But what you need to do is really reach out to the different veterans groups," and it's something that kind of occurred to me i didn't know what the, the right uh, platform or path for that was and then when i was introduced to larry newman uh that opened the doors and i'm actually in the process now of of uh, putting programs together and uh you know for no charge and seeing who's interested in obtaining them mainly through sleep management breath work and and trauma-informed mindfulness that's interesting uh, can you delve into those things a little bit deeper sure I learned breath work in a, in a different form in the early 90s, uh, it, it, you know, through basically my study of yoga. I, I would always look for tools to help with the kids that I was working with. And I also realized they were tools to help myself. When I started the school, uh, the, I guess the first year I was there, it was uh, the, the 2,500 homicides in, in New York City. And there was a death threat actually taken out on me and my brother because we were interfering with the drug traffic in, 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 in the, in the block that we had the school and police came by and they were very good. And they said, look, we can give you 24 hour protection, but he says, you know how this works. He said, we can also expedite a carry permit and get you a discount on body armor. So I chose the, the second option and I carried a, a, a Colt, uh, 45, 1911 and, uh, wore body armor while I also ran a school. It was different times back then, but, but it was also very stressful. And with everything going on, I needed 
different techniques, both to help myself, but also to help the kids I work with. And breath work was one of those techniques. Now it has really fancy names. And one of the things that people have discovered, and this is both research-backed, evidence-backed, and for me, um, practice-backed and evidence-informed and research-informed, is the, the amount of influence that breathing, normally an automatic function, the way breathing influences emotion, the way breathing influences energy, the way breathing influences sleep, digestion, and interaction with other human beings. A lot of research on this now. There's going to be even more. One of the interesting things in the world of wellness, whether it's Gwyneth Paltrow with Goop or some of these other things, there are people paying a lot of money to be trained, how do I breathe to affect my mood, to affect my digestion, to affect my sleep? And the unfortunate thing is there aren't enough people in the world who are working with, for instance, uh, farmers who I work with, incarcerated teens who I work with, or veterans showing them these ways where they can have certain level of self-efficacy and control over their lives just through the thing that all of us do every day while we're living, and that's breathing. We breathe 24, on average, 20 to 24,000 times a day. And unfortunately, most of, of the breaths that, that we take uh, are, are not good ones. Uh, they're high up in our chest. They activate what's called the, the sympathetic nervous system. So that's fight or flight. And, and we can move into the preferred system that we're supposed to be in most of the day, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, just by five minutes of breathing every day. So part of my mission is now to uh, work with veterans to show them how, whether it's trauma from the past, anxiety about the future, what's going on right that minute, how the breath and trauma-informed mindfulness can impact that for them in a, in a, in a very deliberate, important, and immediate way. So that's that's the mission there. And there are a lot of techniques that, that go into that. And uh, there are people like Elizabeth Stanley, who I think a retired uh, army captain, I think she was. She had, talks about widening the window. In fact, has a book uh, called uh, Widen the Window, where you, you know, we, we, we have a paleolithic nervous system and brain and we're operating in a digital world and that causes all kinds of dysfunction now you layer onto that trauma that can be faced in, in in either a combat situation or just in a hierarchical bureaucracy like the military even in peacetime and and trying to navigate that terrain and and think that what you've done before is going to get you through all that and it just doesn't and so again the breath work that i do the sleep management that I do, the mindfulness that I do, and frankly, also nutrition training uh, are some of the tools that can get people back to where they need to be. Well, that's extremely interesting. And these are things that are available right now that you teach? A absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But, but you talk about, you know, as, as, as part of your mantra in terms of your show, talking about hopefully we get to know each other better, right? People on the civilian side, people on the military side. Right. This kind of breathing, in my vision, there are people who are trained breathwork practitioners who go out into the world, and we all start breathing the right way. We all start to engage in something called co-regulation. We all decide that if we're going to put a breathwork group together, that all of a sudden, we're creating meaning and purpose in people's lives that maybe had been there before, but is no longer there. And increasingly, in my opinion, in a society where there is a collapse of meaning and purpose, this is a way to kind of bring that back and also make people healthier emotionally and physically and spiritually. Absolutely. Something that's definitely needed. Any other thoughts you'd like to put on the table? Well, just that, you know, for anybody listening and, and who, who is working with groups of veterans or whatever, I, I would love for them to reach out to me so that we could talk uh, about a plan and, and, and put that together. Veterans coming back have, have stories to tell and, and they have stories to continue to live. And it's, it's vital that they regain control of those stories because that's gonna shape the future for, for not only them, but anybody in, in their orbit and, and, and sphere of influence. And when they're able to tell their stories in, in a way that where they've touched and regained the center of calm and a center of peace, then that's going to provide more inspiration and healing for 
anybody else that they come in contact with, and it's going to make their lives better. And so, you know, that healing connection and inspiration at an individual level, I think it's important to spread that out uh, in, in, in a very big way group-wise. And so I'm juggling that kind of thing along with coaching farmers. And as I said, uh, coaching teens, I'm trying to put together a, uh, a breathwork certification program where I'm working with, uh, and I work with boys in a, in a maximum security prison where they were convicted of very violent crimes in adult court. And there was nowhere else for these boys to go other than these maximum security facilities. So I work with boys there and they were very clear about what, they, you know, they would buy into or not. And so that gave me some real world feedback on some of the things that I do. But in the new year, uh, I have administrators from three maximum security facilities for teens who are going to try to get Albany to approve a breathwork certification program for these boys. And so what you have there is a covert way for these boys to engage in self-care where at the same time, once they get out, and most of them will get out, they can give back to the communities that they've taken so much from and maybe make some money on the side as part of this wellness boom. So those are the big dreams at the age of 63. I'm kind of uh, you know, running as fast as I can with it, and uh, we'll see what happens. What I've noticed talking to a lot of people, you know, some mental health people, we talk a lot about veteran suicide and what's commonly called PTSD. Mm-hmm. And and one of those fellows enlightened me. He said, you know, the root cause of that is moral injury. Mm-hmm. And it's when the when the, the, the mind and the and the conscience cannot reconcile when you see something or involved in something that is so antithetical to what you know is right and wrong. So there's a lot of alternative type of treatments that don't necessarily fit the common modalities that have been right. relied on for years and years and years. Exactly. And this sounds to be one of them. Exactly. And and, and that's the thing. Some of these and, and again, there's some excellent things out there, whether it's, you know, pharmaceuticals for those that have been prescribed or or cognitive behavioral therapy and so forth. But but it's it's tough to get those going on a regular basis. For some people they're in fact contraindicated. And as you say, People are, are trying to reconcile, you know, who they saw themselves as as people uh, with with the actions that they were forced to take or had to take uh, or ended up taking. But you need to bring them back to the present moment and what I believe is their essential goodness as as human beings. And they need to be co-regulated by other people who have their best interests in mind, so that they're in the present, can look can look forward to a future without anxiety and. These these kinds of alternate modalities that you've mentioned are ways because there's a guy named Dr. Bessel van der Kolk who talks about uh, how trauma and, and wisdom as well is located in the body. And if you're up in your head with a lot of more mainly traditional cognitive approaches, you don't access the body's wisdom. And if you don't access the body's wisdom, which breath work can do and which is a, a, a an easier form of mindfulness than meditation that when you unlock that, that body's trauma through breath work, a whole range of possibilities and, and renewal brings, brings up themselves forth. So, If our listeners are interested in learning more about this approach, two things. Is there a, a book or a, a couple of books that you might recommend and how do they get in touch with you? So I would recommend Widen the Window. It's it's a little heavy going, but, you know, if for people who are interested in some of the science around uh, trauma-informed mindfulness, that's where they should go. Just even doing a search for coherent breathing, like a real simple practice that I can give people, and there are different books that talk about coherent breathing, is it's six breaths in through the abdomen and then six breaths out on the exhalation. And doing that for like 10 minutes, again, a lot of research showing the the importance of that six second breath in, six second breath out. Ideally coupling it with movement as simple as bringing the hands up and above the head on the inhale, exhaling with the hands going down um, can have a tremendous effect. One of my teachers is a, a woman named Dr. Belisa Vranich and she has a book called Breathing for Warriors. So that's another excellent one. There's Exhale by a guy named Richie Bostock out of out of England, B-O-S-T-O-C-K. And then there's Just Breathe by Dan Brule, B-R-U-L-E. I could go on because I've got about 20 of these things, but those are good starters. 
And if people want to get in touch with me, I'm still building out my web website, but it's uh, CarenciaLeadership.org, and Carencia is spelled Q-U-E-R-E-N-C-I-A, leadership.org. And that kind of is a reference to uh, what uh, Ernest Hemingway talked about in the, in the bullfight ring, where the bull knows it can go and be safe and no one can harm it and where it will uh, be strong for anything that comes at it. That's, that's where Carencia comes from. So. Very interesting, enlightening conversation, and um, it strikes me that um, this is something else that should be employed. We just finished a uh, panel discussion on veterans' homelessness, and one of the big problems th that contributes to people, veterans especially, to find themselves homeless is the issue of reintegration and the fact that the military does a great job getting you in, but uh, they do kind mm -hmm. of a lousy job getting you out. Right. And right. Uh, so I, it strikes me that this uh, breathing exercises and acknowledgement and utilization could be very valuable in a, a reintegration program. Well, and Doug, I just, I just, I'm sorry, I got to add one other thing. One of the people that I'm working with on this is uh, a former Marine, a guy who's a few years younger than me, grew up in, in my community, raised by a, a single father who was a Vietnam veteran. And this former Marine, uh, now after being a security contractor, 20-year NYPD veteran, Marine, so forth, is the chief operating officer for seven men's homeless shelters. A lot of the guys there are veterans. And he says, you have no idea how intelligent and, and well-trained and savvy these guys are. He says, but they, they have just trouble reintegrating and maintaining control of their emotions, and they end up back here every single time. And so we're talking about a breathwork program for these veterans who are in these homeless shelters in, in New York City. So, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Hans Hageman, thank you so much for your time and for this valuable contribution to Let's Talk Bets on Radio Catskill, WJFF. Thank you for the opportunity, Doug. Our thanks tonight to Don Shaw, Director of the Hudson Valley VA Healthcare System, Pete Meriday, Peer Support Manager at Clear Path for Veterans, and Hans Hageman, Veterans Wellness Advocate and Teacher. And to you for joining us once again. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future programs. Also, send us your upcoming events so we may talk about them on the air. And don't forget, if you or someone you know is experiencing anxiety or need to speak to someone, here are some numbers to remember. The Veterans Crisis Line, 1-800-273-8255, press 1 to speak with someone. Send a text message to 838255 to connect with the VA responder. Or start a confidential online chat session at Veterans Crisis Line, one word, dot net, slash chat. And don't forget that Let's Talk Vets is now widely available as a podcast. So until our next formation, thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. Company dismissed. Staying Home, your revolutionary guide to the Green New Deal. I'm Josh Fox, coming to you from the heart of the Catskills on Radio Catskill. Every week we'll be talking with notable figures from politics, music, art, activism, and social justice, discussing the issues of the environment, the Green New Deal, climate change, fracking, and how we can make the world a better place on my favorite radio station in the world, WJFF. Saturday afternoon at 1. Womex, the global music exposition, took place in Porto, Portugal in 2021. And Lusophone acts from Angola, Cape Verde, Brazil, Guinea-Bissau, and of course, Portugal, were front and center. Hello, I'm Georges Collinet. Join me for more highlights from the world's best music party, Womex, the Lusophone connection, next time on Afropop Worldwide, from PRX. Saturday night at 9 
on Radio Catskill. Estás escuchando Radio Catskill, radio pública para The Catskill y el noreste de Pensilvania. Hey there, I'm Cassie of Rare Pair Radio. It's a weekly showcase of primarily female artists, but also a wide range of avant-garde musicians. I will be playing the fruit of post-punk, experimental, and fringe music, only on WJFF Radio Catskill. 